Hello there and a very warm welcome to Des's Island Discs. In a hectic world, this is a little oasis of calm and nostalgia from our guests who choose pieces of music that remind them of a particular time or story from their life or career. Now, if you're listening on podcast, we cannot play the music because of copyright laws. But really, this is about stories. So let's hear them. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. Hello there, my name is Des Cahill and today's visitor to the island has had a remarkable career in politics. From presenting RTE's main current affairs programme to standing for election and ultimately becoming president of the European Parliament. It's a pleasure to welcome Pat Cox, an incredible career, Pat. It's interesting, Des, my, my sense, I suppose, is not of having a career. Yeah. But uh, I've had a fantastic life full of fascination and challenge and diversity and so on. People will wonder your first political links in the sense of the broadcasting. You're presenting a primetime programme in RTE, primetime as in the slot, Today Tonight with Olivia Leary, Brian Farrell, etc. At a fascinating political time. It was an incredibly uh, good time to be in broadcasting. We had a captive Irish audience that didn't have all the choices it has today. We had the extraordinary goings-on around the leadership challenges, uh, the consecutive challenges to Charles Hohe and his leadership. We had, uh, unhappily, uh, the backdrop still of the ongoing troubles and terrorism in Northern Ireland. And uh, we had a fascinating uh, international scene as well. So... You were never short of work and never short of interesting stories to tell. Which would make people wonder what prompted the decision to ditch such an interesting job and jump into the fire effectively of of standing yourself for election. I don't think I walked away from the job so much as I walked towards the next opportunity, which was a very high risk uh, moment at the time. I was invited to consider becoming the first uh, secretary general of the newly formed Progressive Democrats. And I thought to myself, well, this is a, an extraordinary uh, possibility and moment because uh, the foundation of new parties in the state has been pretty rare. As we've seen, their survivorship, the Progressive Democrats included, has also been extremely rare. Uh, they're mostly, after some years, extinct species. But nonetheless, it was a challenge I didn't want to resist. And as Secretary General and as a Director of Elections, I was very involved in campaign design, organisation and delivery. That was halfway across the Rubicon. So crossing the Rubicon fully to contest politics and in my case to contest the European Munster constituency in 1989 was, I won't say you know, a, a logical linear step, but it became an available step uh, and one that I uh, grasped with both hands. Yeah, and you were successful in it. And on a day when you lost seats, am I right, in the Dáil? The yeah. Progressive Democrats had their best election, their first election in 1987. And in 89, Charles Hohe called a Dáil election to coincide in the same day with the European election. Uh, the Progressive Democrats uh, had a bad day. They went, I think, if I recall, from about 14 to 6 seats. Uh, but in the constituency of Munster, uh, I had the good fortune to head the poll. But then came what to me looks like an extraordinary uh, project for you, that you, you were involved in the coalition negotiations, weren't you, on behalf of the PDs, with Albert Reynolds and Bertie Hearn representing Charlie Hoy. In uh, 1989, 
the Progressive Democrats' numbers were uh, smaller than before, but uh, paradoxically, they had exactly the number of seats that Charles Haughey needed to form a government. And so the party appointed, uh, after much discussion and deliberation about uh, doing this or not, decided to appoint uh, a, a negotiating team, which consisted of uh, Robert Malloy and myself. And on the Fianna Fáil side, it was Albert Reynolds and Bertie Ahern. We uh, ended up forging an agreement which produced, uh, for Fianna Fáil in particular, uh, at the time, a controversial first ever coalition. And in fact, since 1989, the state only ever has been governed by coalitions that have become increasingly more complex, with the possible exception of the uh, current outgoing Dáil, where it wasn't quite a coalition, but where the arrangements between mm. uh, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael uh, offered stability. But, but Charlie Hawhey did not want to concede to the PDs in those days. Sure he didn't. Charlie Hawhey could do the arithmetic, and he had failed to win the rights and privileges of majority at the uh, ballot box. And he, before his negotiators, was the one who came to the dawning realisation that numbers had changed, times had changed, and the deal had to be done. At a certain moment, after a, a period of standoff, there was a meeting between uh, Charles Hawhey, Des O'Malley, Robert Malloy and myself, where the understanding that the negotiation would end in a coalition government, even if Charlie didn't want to use that word as a kind of a, a, a dirty word that might foul his tongue, uh, we all knew what the outcome should be. And after that, uh, he instructed his negotiators to engage or re-engage with us, and so began the detail of the policy formation. And once the deal was done, was he accepting of the situation and was he, was he open to the PDs, given the acrimony that had led to the foundation of the PDs? I think the answer to that was, uh, was yes. I mean, I, I can't speak to the nature of the interpersonal relations between Des O'Malley and Charles Hawhey, other than the times I saw them meet. And that was around the time of the formation, where they dealt with each other in, a, in an engaging and professional way. But I think probably uh, Hawhey's acceptance of this uh, sowed the seeds of his own eventual undoing when some of his colleagues, known somewhat colloquially in the, the media as the country and Western set, set to to remove him when the opportunity presented itself some years later. And I've little doubt that part of the seeds of that was the willingness to concede the coalition at that time. You mentioned the PDs not surviving in the long term, but, but they had huge influence in a few governments. Absolutely. They were, I, I left the party in 1994 in contesting the European Parliament elections, but they had a very long, almost unbroken period in government, uh, which had the advantage, absolutely no doubt, of conferring on them power and influence, and which had the disadvantage of uh, removing uh, consecutively the capacity to self-develop an identity and uh, space for continuity over time. All right, let's get to your first musical choice, Pat. Joseph Locke. Well, the, 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 the context, Joseph Locke comes to mind precisely because of how he sings the song. Uh, I got married in March of 1974 uh, to my wife, uh, Cathy. She's from Ballymoton, County Sligo. And we had our wedding reception in a, a small hotel called the Forest Park in Boyle. The hotel is long since demolished. And in those days, uh, you got uh, married in the church in the morning. 
uh, and then you'd head off to have what was called in the hotel uh, arrangements of the time a wedding breakfast, which really was a dinner. Yeah. But then to add to the confusion, we had it at lunchtime, which is when Irish people had their dinner. And at that time, I think the interesting thing about all of us days is we think we decide things for ourselves, but the traces of the society and culture we live in are all over us. Yeah. So in those days, when you got married, you did the thing I've described and you had the wedding breakfast and you had a, a dance or two afterwards. And then the bride would go off and get out of her wedding dress, get into a going away outfit toss her bouquet of flowers over her shoulder to uh, the assembled multitude and depart the scene. And so that happened early in the day. Unlike our adult children's weddings and the other weddings we've gone to in more recent years, uh, this was rather a brief event. It was the way it was done in those times. And one of our guests, a man called Jack Martin, a beautiful natural tenor singer who was there with his wife as neighbours of the family in Ballymote, stood up and he sang, as we were about to leave, to my wife's name, she's Cathy to us, but yeah. Kathleen to her family of origin, I'll take you home again, Kathleen. And Joseph Locke, to me, as a natural tenor, reminds me, singing that, exactly, of Jack Martin on that day. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. That's Joseph Locke and I'll take you home again, Kathleen, the choice of today's guest, Pat Cox. Tell me about going out to Europe and your understanding of European politics when you went there, because it was still relatively in its infancy. Long before I'd been in RTE, I'd been working as a lecturer in economics. And uh, when I came to RTE to Today Tonight, I left the University of Limerick. And there I had helped to establish what would have been the first ever undergraduate programme in the economics of the European Economic Community. And long before the internet came, in Limerick we had the benefit of a thing called the European Documentation Centre. So as a young academic, I had this cornucopia of open access, English language, but not only English language, documentation from the European institutions. So I had a policy familiarity and fascination for quite a long time. And when I was Secretary General of the Progressive Democrats, I went out to uh, the European Parliament in uh, Strasbourg and in Brussels to negotiate the party's entry into the Liberal Democrat group, political group of the European Parliament. And so by the time I got there, I knew some of the people there. Some of them uh, knew me. They knew the party. We had attended a, a pre-electoral congress. And so although it was early days, we had begun to embed ourselves in that culture of transnational deal-making and politics that is an intrinsic part of the uh, working method of the European Parliament. And in your view, did the Irish public appreciate that enough? I think by and large, and I don't ex put it down to the Irish public, I think the public in general don't know an awful lot about the European Parliament. It turns up occasionally in news stories and so on. For all of that, it, it, it is a place that can wield extraordinary influence. But the point about European legislation by the time it becomes transposed into national law in a member state, it has long since passed by the legislative process in Europe, mm -hmm. and it maybe only gets known or becomes controversial uh, after its Euro sell-by date, but just in time for its Irish transposition date. But all that said, uh, it, is, uh, it is an extraordinary institution. There is no parallel in the world. 
where citizens directly elect people to a transnational parliament to be able to legislate for a transnational, very large and quite wealthy region in the world. If you take the great arc and sweep of history, this is a, a relatively uh, juvenile set of institutions, uh, but that have uh, been founded on an extraordinary presumption that reconciliation and uh, self-interested but um, coordinated engagement mm -hmm. can lead to the prosperity and the good of all. Let's go to your second musical choice, Pat Cox, Alad Jones. I remember Christmas of 1987. We bought a cassette present for our eldest daughter, Sinead, of Alad Jones, and she played it non-stop. <laughs> it was the backdrop to our 1987 Christmas. <laughs> Kathy, my wife, bought me a copy of Richard Elman's magnificent biography of Oscar Wilde. The Christmas lights were on, the tree was up, the fire was blazing, the book was great reading. We had a family of six children, happy and contented. And I recall listening to that Alan Jones piece and feeling at that moment, and I, I still have the sense of that moment, a profound sense of kind of inner contentment, a feeling that this is kind of as good as it gets. And I don't mean it in a smug way, but in that satisfying sense, isn't life wonderful? La vita è bella. And it was not to be my last moment of contentment, thank God, but it did mark a threshold because the joy of the family was rudely and abruptly changed, reminding you not just of the wonder of life, if you have a young family, but of the burdens that can go with it. Uh, and that was when our youngest daughter, Mary, in June of 1988, six months later, was killed in a traffic accident on the way to school. She carried a bag on her back, and in it was, we discovered later, a childlike drawing of a little girl floating above the ground. And that's now hung on a wall at home. And the words of that song were walking in the air, were floating in the moonlit sky, the people far below are sleeping as we fly. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. That's Alad Jones, the choice of today's guest, Pat Cox. So, Pat, life for everybody brings ups and downs. And, and I mean, that was savage pain for you that you refer to the death of your daughter, Mary. But career-wise, there were to be highs and you were to get the unique honour of becoming president in the European Parliament. It was a unique honour, and bear in mind the President of the Parliament is an elected post, not an appointed one. And so when the possibility to contest came, it was a hard contest. I came from a small country, which is numerically a disadvantage, from a smaller group, which numerically is a severe disadvantage, and needed to build a, a coalition of support. And there was a very good uh, list of candidates running against me. In my case, uh, I think it went to a, a third or fourth round of election before we squeezed out a narrow majority. But the thing I know from politics, from my own life in politics, is the size of the majority, be it enormous or narrow, misses the point. Because mathematically, the difference is between zero and infinity. And so the narrow win for me in a contested election gave me the democratic energy to feel that I had a serious mandate after what was perhaps in my time in the Parliament the first genuinely and seriously contested election because normally the big battalions would do a deal and would swap the positions every two and a half years 
but in in my case uh, it somewhat broke that cycle so it was at some way small country small group a statistical impossibility but then life isn't about statistics mm. it's about taking your chance and going with things at full flood and hoping you don't drown along the way the great challenge of that moment was the very detailed and dense preparatory pathway to bring in 10 new member states. And I spent a huge amount of time and effort on that. I had the privilege to visit and to speak to the plenary session on behalf of the European Parliament, of every parliament of every accession state. I had the uh, privilege to be able to organise a system to invite some of those parliamentarians in as observers to the European Parliament after their countries signed accession treaties, but before these had yet been ratified and became law. And of course, I had the privilege to be here in Dublin when an Irish presidency of the Union topped off the uh, formal arrival on the uh, beginning of May, the 1st of May of 2004, of the 10 new states. The event was hosted in Orson Uchtaran by Mary McAleese, and I had the privilege to be there and through the various events that day to speak in Ireland as an Irish man, but for the entire European Parliament. And on the Monday following that in Strasbourg, we greeted the speakers of all the new parliaments. We had a flag-raising ceremony. Uh, we had a short speech from Lech Walesa, the former Polish president, and of course famous from the uh, shipyards in Gdansk. And I had arranged, because uh, I would have broken the EU rules on uh, public procurement if I, if I, if I uh, did this otherwise. I'd arrange for uh, Poland to give a gift to us uh, of the huge flagpoles that carried the 10 new flags. They stand now uh, outside the European Parliament in Strasbourg. 10 of them are marked as made in the shipyard in Gdansk. To me, a symbolic testament to the journey from the communist oppressive era to a new possibility of shared freedom and prosperity. Let's move to your, your final musical choice, Pat, as unfortunately time catches up with us. My final musical choice goes back to 1994. It was the year when it appeared I wouldn't be running in the European uh, elections, where uh, I had reconciled myself to that. I was still with my group in the European Parliament. They sent me, uh, as an observer, because I was free to do it for three weeks, to South Africa, to the first free elections there. And I ended up there uh, working, among others, with Dr Rory O'Hanlon, who was representing Dáil Éireann. We worked in the Victor Verster prison, the prison that Nelson Mandela left in 1990 as a free man, having spent some time there after his awful time on Robben Island. We supervised the elections, starting at five in the morning in a township near Parle in the Western Cape. There was already a queue of a kilometre long, and I spoke to a woman in the queue who said she'd been there all night because she wanted to be the first black woman to vote in South Africa. When I was leaving after all of this extraordinary kind of democratic birth, I was in Cape Town waiting to get a flight back to uh, Frankfurt and then go to Strasbourg and report to the group. And a young group, uh, students I would say, um, mixed race, because everyone there had racial tags, but they, they started to hold hands, their families were there, and they began to sing the new uh, South African national anthem, an old hymn. And as they did it, other people, workers and families and people about to fly, all held hands and spontaneously sang this beautiful hymn, Enkosi Sikileli i Africa, 
God bless Africa. I was so overcome with this whole experience in the several weeks, with that moment of departure, that I decided when I came home, although the election nominations were to close 24 or 48 hours later, with no organisation, no campaign structure, uh, and no nomination, that we would get a nomination and fight the elections. And five weeks later, I was back in the parliament. I was elected to the vice presidency of my group and it was the first step on the road to being the president of the parliament. And I owe South Africa. I remember that moment. God bless Africa. Nkosi Sikaleli e Africa. Well, it's an extraordinary image on which to, to end the programme. Pat Cox, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Des. Thank you so much for your invitation. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1.